Well, let's start with a question. How many here would like to see some positive changes in your life? Okay, some. Somebody said, not too many. Uh, just some. Uh, we, you know, most people would. None of us has reached perfection yet. Uh, and so there's always room to grow. There's always room for positive changes in our lives. And God has a wonderful plan that he's created us to live. And we're seeking to live as close to that plan as we possibly can. And we're going to be talking in this new message series, which we start today, which is called New Life. We're going to be talking about the changes that God wants to work in and through our lives. And so in this series, we're going to be looking at different encounters that Jesus has with different people, different kinds of people. And in each of these encounters, Jesus is offering these people basically a new life. And the most important thing in life for people is to have an encounter with Jesus and to accept his offer of a new life. That was what Jesus came into this world to do. That was his purpose in life. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to this world to search for lost people and to save them. And Jesus is seeking to do the same today. Now, he's seeking to encounter lost people. Now, let's think about what it means to be lost. If something is lost, it's, it's lost to a certain person. If I lose my car keys, which happens from time to time, I mean, they're not totally lost, um, but they're somewhere. Uh, if I lose my car keys, they're lost to me uh, because they have a use and purpose for me. And uh, they don't have a use and purpose. Well, they might have to a thief, but um, you're not a legitimate use for anybody else. And so lost keys cannot fulfill their purpose of starting my car if they're lost to me. And so a lost person is lost to Jesus. They're lost to a relationship with him. They're, they're outside of his, of his purpose for their lives. And Jesus is seeking to find them and to save them. To be saved by Jesus is to be rescued from a person's old lost life without Jesus and brought into a new life with Jesus. And so in this series, New Life, we're going to be having two main purposes. The first purpose is to learn from Jesus about this new life that he offers, what it all entails, and how even if we are believers, we can grow in that new life. And secondly, the second purpose is learn from Jesus' example how we can seek and save the lost as well. We can learn from his example and the things he did and the things he said, how to reach out to the people that are all around us that need to meet Jesus Christ. Now, the first message in this series I've entitled, Water for the Thirsty. The Bible often speaks of, of people being thirsty for God. One example that came to my mind was Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, speaking of a thirsty deer looking for a crystal clear, cold, running stream to drink from and to satisfy their thirst. And it's saying, as that deer is looking to to satisfy their thirst, so we should be thirsty for God, thirsty for more of God in our lives. And I believe that every person is born with an innate thirst for God. They want to know their creator. 
even though they may not realize it. Now, some people talk about, you know, a vacuum. Everybody's got a vacuum in their heart, uh, in their soul, that's looking to be filled with God. That's certainly true. It's not exactly biblical language. I don't think there's anything about a vacuum, but it talks about thirst, a thirst for God. Uh, many people do not recognize how to quench that thirst. They're thirsting for something. They feel like their life is not fulfilled, and they look every place to fulfill it other than God, and that doesn't work. Jeremiah 2.13 tells us about looking in places other than God. It says, for my people have committed two evils. First is they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so first of all, God tells us that, that he is a fountain of living waters. He is, he is the one that's going to satisfy the thirst that we have in our lives. He's going to satisfy the desires that we have. A fountain that keeps on flowing, not just with water, but with living water. But oftentimes people, rather than seeking for God, rather than seeking for the living water that He offers, they construct broken cisterns trying to fill their lives with something, with water, with natural water. And even though cisterns are broken, they cannot hold that water. Those broken cisterns are idols in our lives. Things that we pursue, things that other people pursue that are outside of God's plan for our lives. People try to fill their lives with pleasure. They try to fill their lives with different addictions, whether chemical, physical, or whatever they may be. And it doesn't satisfy. Jesus taught us that living water is needed to quench our thirst. And that living water that Jesus offers, as we see today, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell on each and every person when they are saved, and yet there is always more of the Spirit available. We're instructed to be baptized with the Spirit, to be continually filled with the Spirit. We're instructed to, to continually drink of the Spirit. And so, as believers, God does not want us to be content. God does not, us, not want us to think that we don't need more of Him. We still need to keep on drinking to quench the thirst that we have for God. So this morning, let's look at an unusual encounter that Jesus has with a woman of, as we'll see, of poor reputation. And in this encounter, first of all, Jesus breaks barriers. And so our story begins with Jesus traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. And in order to get there by the shortest route, he had to go through Samaria. So the geography is in the south of Judea, then there's Samaria, and there's Galilee in the north. And on this trip, as he's passing through Samaria, Jesus gets tired, and he takes a break by sitting down by a well at noontime. And our story begins in verse 7. Whoops. A woman from Samaria came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now that's a very short verse, but we see... In this verse, Jesus breaking through multiple barriers of political correctness of their day. In those days, no respectable Jewish rabbi, or male for that matter, would be seen talking to 
a woman alone in public. It just was not done. A woman in that culture had a much lower uh, status on the social scale than men. And this was something that was not done. Secondly, this woman was a Samaritan. And Jews had very unfriendly relations with Samaritans. Uh, it goes way back in history. We don't have time to talk about it. They just didn't talk to Samaritans. Samaritans just didn't talk to them. It was just like, don't talk. We, we have nothing in common. Uh, it was not done. And yet, Jesus broke through those cultural barriers. A male and female of uh, Jewish or Samaritan background, he broke through those by speaking to this woman in public. And not only did he speak to her, he asked her for something to draw some water for him from the well. And so Jesus took the initiative in the conversation. He didn't wait for the woman to speak. He spoke to her first. And the woman then asked Jesus, why, why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me for something? I'm a Samaritan woman, don't you know? And of course, Jesus did know. And Jesus replied to her in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Boy, Jesus really turns the corner fast in this conversation. It begins with talking about having a drink of physical water. And the woman asks him a question. <clears throat> and it's interesting, it says Jesus answered her. But did he answer her question? No, he didn't answer it at all, really. And oftentimes, Jesus doesn't answer people's questions. We'll talk about uh, that more. We don't have to answer every question that people ask us. Some questions are intended to get us off topic. And Jesus is never off topic. And here he's right on topic. He immediately turns the conversation from physical thirst and physical water to spiritual reality. And Jesus says that the woman should know two things. He brings out Two things that she should know. First of all, she should know the gift of God. If you really knew the gift of God. Now, what is the gift of God? In the Bible, the gift of God refers sometimes to the Holy Spirit, sometimes to eternal life. We don't have time to look at all those references, but they're, of course, related. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have eternal life. If you have eternal life, you have the Holy Spirit. And so it's the gift of God, some, a spiritual reality. Secondly, the woman should know who Jesus really is. If you knew who was talking to you, you would be asking different questions. And we're going to see before the end of the conversation, the woman finds out who Jesus really is. When you're ready to understand those two things, what the gift of God really is, and who Jesus is, then you're going to be ready to ask him for what he offers. You're going to desire that. Now, the woman doesn't understand that yet. And so in opening this conversation with the woman, Jesus aggressively breaks through multiple cultural barriers. And he directs the conversation relatively quickly into key spiritual matters. Now as believers, God desires for us to follow Jesus' example. He, he desires for us to break through our culture's politically correct barriers. Of course, one of the barriers is don't proselytize anyone else, right? Don't speak to anyone else seeking to convert them to your religion. That's a, that's a barrier that we need to break through. Initiate conversation with people 
seek God's direction to turn the conversation from mundane topics like the weather or the Cardinals being blown out last night. You know, we were at that game. I guess we were responsible for that. So I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, <clears throat> it's a beautiful day, but not a beautiful score. In case you don't follow, they lost 17 to 4. There's a lot of home runs by the other team. So, uh, anyhow, back on track. So, initiate conversations with people and direct the conversation to spiritual topics. What, what are topics? Well, what did Jesus do here? The first is the benefit. What is the benefit of knowing Jesus? The benefit is the gift of God. It's eternal life. And eternal life is not just about heaven. It begins in this life. It lasts forever, it lasts to heaven, but it begins in this life. The second is the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? That's really the key question. Who is Jesus? Is he simply a, a good teacher? Is he a prophet or is he the son of God himself? So let's explore further how Jesus describes face benefit. Jesus promises eternal life. The woman then asked Jesus in we're not going through every single verse in John chapter 4 just for the time element. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. She then questioned Jesus about where are you going to get this living water? She's intrigued about living water. What, what is this living water? And she wonders, is, is Jesus greater than Jacob, the one who dug this well? It's often referred to as Jacob's well. The patriarch dug that well, I guess at that time, would probably be thousands of years ago. And of course... What she's wondering is, many of the things she wonders is true. Jesus is greater than Jacob. He's offering something much greater. And Jesus says to her in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the water in Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus now gives a further contrast between the physical water, which is really what the woman is thinking about, and the, the living water that he is speaking of. The living water that Jesus offers will quench the thirst in a person's heart, the thirst in a person's heart for God. But that quenching will not be accomplished with a single drink of living water. Take one drink of living water and everything's fine. That living water is something that comes inside of a person, a spring that keeps flowing. It's not you just drink living water externally. Jesus wants you to have, wanted her to have and us to have, that living water inside of us as a spring that keeps bubbling up, that keeps flowing day in and day out for the rest of our lives. Because that will quench every thirst of the human heart. Every day as you thirst for God, it will quench that thirst. And finally, Jesus tells the woman that this living water will have the amazing capacity to provide eternal life. Now, who doesn't want to live forever? God put that desire in the heart of every human being. Nobody wants to die. I mean, really, I mean, sometimes you're in a lot of pain and different things, but if you had a normal, healthy life, I mean, you just want to keep on living. God put that desire in our heart to live forever. And he's saying that that living water wells up to 
eternal life. Now, with benefits like that, who wouldn't say, sign me up? I want some of this living water. That's what the woman says. She says in verse 15, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Well, she knows she wants what Jesus is offering, uh, but she still seems to be relating to her physical thirst. It's noon, it's hot, she's still thirsty, and it's hard work to draw water. You know, they had a bucket, and they lowered it all the way down, and then they pulled it all the way up. It's hard work. She didn't want to do that anymore. But she's becoming more and more open to Jesus as, as the conversation proceeds. Now, as we look at different encounters that Jesus has with different kinds of people, his approach is different, okay? There's not just one approach. I mean, not, this is not the approach to use for every person you're going to meet. Uh, but this is one approach, and we see some, some general principles here, and I believe it's some important things. It's an approach to witnessing that we should use often. Now, as we go on in this story, we're going to see that this woman really has a lot to repent of. But Jesus doesn't start with that. He doesn't start with repent. Now, sometimes he did, but this time he doesn't. He doesn't start with repent. He highlights the benefits of believing in him. And the benefit is this living water. And this approach helps the woman to begin to understand what her spiritual thirst is all about and perhaps how she's tried to quench it with men, as we'll see. And it hasn't satisfied her. In John 7, 39, a, little, a few chapters ahead in the book of John, Jesus tells us that, the, that rivers of living water will flow from the hearts of believers. And he says, these rivers of living water are the Holy Spirit. And so he tells us what this living water really is talking about here. And so where, wherever you are at in your relationship with Jesus, whether you're a new believer, you've walked with him for a while, uh, we all need to be continually filled with the Spirit of God. We need this, this living water to be welling up in us and flowing out as a river. To those around us. We need to seek more of the Spirit's power in our lives. More of this living water to flow freely from us. And that living water can be stopped up. That we can, if we're commanded to be filled continually with the Spirit, we can be, what's the opposite? Uh, unfilled, empty. Empty of the Holy Spirit. Or flowing, you know, a stream can flow in a mighty rushing river. Or it can be a, a little drip, Right? And so we need more of God's power. And how do we get more of God's power and spirit in our lives? Well, one way is to read about it in Scripture. And to thirst for more of it. To desire more of that living water in our lives. And believe God for more of that. You see, the power of eternal life is not just for heaven. It's, it's for this life here and now as well. So Jesus promises this the woman, this living water that's going to well up to eternal life. And then he goes on to show some supernatural insight. The next thing Jesus does is he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And so after speaking of the living water and offering that as a benefit to the woman, which is the Holy Spirit, Jesus begins to flow in a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit 
gives Jesus insight into the woman's history. Now, he'd never met this woman before. He'd never talked to anyone about this woman. He had no way of knowing what her past was or what her current situation was. But the Holy Spirit revealed that to him supernaturally. And Jesus now begins to highlight the woman's sinful past so that she can repent. The woman answers Jesus and says, I have no husband. Well, that's the whole truth, or that's maybe part of the truth, but that's not the whole answer, which Jesus knows. And so Jesus replies, well, you are right, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So it's true she has no husband. But Jesus knew through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit revealing to him that she was not presently married and that she had previously had five husbands. Now, even today, that's a lot of husbands and divorces. And if you read uh, Jewish comments about things in that day and age, anything over two or three husbands is just considered extreme. And so that was virtually unheard of in Jesus' day. This woman had a very sinful lifestyle. She had gone through five husbands. She was now on the sixth. And who knows if she kept going, how many she would have had. She had a thirst, and it wasn't being fulfilled. She tried one man, it didn't work. Tried another man, it didn't work. Tried another man. She's now on her sixth man. And undoubtedly, she come to draw water at noon in the heat of the day. Why did she do that? That wasn't when the women normally came. They normally came early in the morning or late at night, and they all came. And what do you think women did when they drew water and a bunch of them came? They, well, not gossiped, Richard. They, they <laughs> talked nicely about all their neighbors and everybody, and, and uh, they talked well, along with all the other ladies. Well, she came at noon, there was nobody there. Because when she came, do you think she was all the other ladies' best buddy or best girlfriend? Uh, no. And they probably gossiped about her. They probably would have. And that's why she came at noon to be alone. So she wouldn't have to deal with the ridicule of other women. And that's when Jesus met her at her place of aloneness. And so after hearing Jesus tell her about her past, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She understood that there was no way Jesus could have known about her past life. There was no way he could have known about not just her sinful lifestyle, but she had five husbands and she was living with somebody now who she was not married to. And so... <clears throat> She perceives now, she's beginning to perceive that there is a supernatural dimension to Jesus. That he is a prophet who hears from God. And so Jesus had demonstrated supernatural insight as he's talking to her. And as we read through the Gospels and look at the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his disciples as he teaches and trains them, we see them operating with supernatural insight and power. As we read through the book of Acts, which talks about the early church, how the apostles and other believers went out as witnesses, we see the same thing happening. 
we see supernatural insight and the Holy Spirit's power in the lives of the people who are witnesses for Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, we are commanded to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Why? So that we can use it in witnessing is one of the ways and to build up the body of Christ as well, but in one of the ways that God would give us insight. And so Jesus, in God's word, Jesus' example here in God's word is teaching us that our witness must contain two aspects. First of all, we need to talk about the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word. We have to convey the truth in love to those around us. Secondly, we need to demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the way the Bible shows us that Jesus was an effective witness, that people in the book of Acts, believers in the book of Acts, were effective witnesses. Uh, it's what Acts 1.8 says. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need that supernatural dimension operating in our lives to be effective witnesses for Jesus. And so pray that God would give you, that God would give us more supernatural insight in our witnessing to others. Next, Jesus overcomes objections. The woman speaks next after she perceives Jesus is a prophet. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so immediately after this woman perceives that Jesus is a prophet, she tries to, to sidetrack the conversation, to take it off her personally and talk about a controversial question. Now, she was a Samaritan. And hundreds of years ago, the Samaritans built a temple on Mount Gerizim, and that's where they worshipped, right there in Samaria. Now, the Jews still worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. And they said, that's the right place. Samaritans said, well, you know, this was really the right place. Now, the temple had been destroyed, uh, but it was, there were still the ruins there. Now, which was right? I have Jesus, you know, if he said Jerusalem, she would have got upset because she was a Samaritan and that's not what they believed. Of course, if he was a, as a Jew, if he said the Samaritan place was the right place, well, he would have got it. I mean, that was not the right thing to say. So what could Jesus say which was right? He replies to her that worshiping God is not about a particular place. Whether it's Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus tells the woman that God is seeking people to worship him. He's, he's searching and seeking for people. And the kind of people he's seeking are not people who think worship is tied to a particular geographical location. The kind of people that God is seeking to worship him are those who are going to worship in spirit and truth. And what does Jesus mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, to worship in spirit simply means that a true worshiper is worshiping God in and through the Holy Spirit. Now, some translations are starting to say, many of the ones don't, but the word spirit, when it refers to the human spirit, or spirit, when it refers to the Holy Spirit, is the same word in the Greek. It's pneuma. And people, translators, decide which one is it referring to and then capitalize it if it's referring to Holy If they think it's referring to the Holy Spirit, 
I think it should be capitalized here, and some others agree with me, but it's the word pneuma. God is spirit capitalized. Those who worship him must worship in spirit capitalized and truth. And that's the only kind of true worship, to worship in spirit. And secondly, to worship in truth. Talked about that already, worship based on the truth of God that's revealed to us in God's word. And so Jesus overcomes objections. Now, when we're talking to people about Jesus, we'll often find that people will ask controversial questions to sidetrack the conversation away from their personal responsibility to talk about Jesus in their lives. What do they think of Jesus? They'll try to sidetrack things. And... Um, Common examples of objection questions, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil in the world? If God is all-powerful, why does he allow this? There's all kinds of uh, controversial questions that people will bring up. Now, I'm not saying we never answer those questions. There are answers to those questions, but they're generally not simple answers to the questions. And oftentimes... People aren't really looking for an answer to those questions. Uh, they're just looking to, as I said, sidetrack the conversation. And so as a, as a witness, we need to keep our conversation personal. It needs to be keep it focused on the person's response as Jesus was. And Jesus' focus was on presenting the, the benefits of a new life. The power and benefit of having the Holy Spirit, that living water, flowing inside of you. Jesus was talking about true worshipers. They're not concerned with the place of worship. Overcoming objections. Finally, Jesus reveals his identity. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So this woman's perception of Jesus has moved from being a giver of living water, which she did, had no idea what that meant, to a prophet. And now she's, or in being greater than Jacob, and now she's wondering in her own mind without actually saying it, is, is this the Messiah? I mean, you are telling me all kinds of things. How can you possibly know that? Are you the Messiah? And so we can see the lights beginning to come on, her Eyes which were blinded beginning to be opened to see the truth about Jesus. And so the most important question that, that every person needs to answer is, who is Jesus? And that is where Jesus is steering the conversation. Uh, who is he? Who do you say that he is? And Jesus answers the question, the implied question, in the woman's statement about the Messiah. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Now in English, Jesus is clearly saying, I am he, I am the Messiah who was to come. I am the Christ. In the Greek, Jesus' statement is even more powerful. The first words in the Greek, which isn't in that word order at all, are ego me," which means I am. I am the one Speaking to you, I am the name of God that was spoken to Moses when Moses asked, who are you? What should I call you? Who should I say you are? And God said, I am. 
I am who I am. That is my name. And so Jesus is saying to her that he is the Messiah. He is God Almighty. He is the great I am. Jesus has fully revealed his identity to the woman. And you can read the rest of the story in John chapter 4. It's implied that the woman believes in Jesus. She goes back to her town. She tells many other people about him. They believe in him. Eventually, Jesus goes to the town and even more people in Samaria believe. And so the crucial question in our lives and in our witness is, who is Jesus? And what are the possible answers to that question? One of the most common answers that people will will give today is Jesus was a good teacher or perhaps they'll say he was some type of prophet. I mean, the Muslims say Jesus was a prophet, okay? A lot of people in America would say, well, he's a good man. He said a lot of good things. I mean, he said, you know, love one another, and I like that, and, you know, a lot of good things that he said. Well, Jesus was a good teacher, certainly. Jesus was a prophet. But there have been a lot of good teachers. There have been a lot of prophets. Jesus was much more than that. In our passage today, we see Jesus clearly claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be God himself. And he makes similar claims throughout the Gospels if we read them carefully. And so Jesus cannot be simply a a good human teacher or a good human prophet. His claims to divinity, to being God, prove otherwise. Now, you know, we may see somebody on let's say, TV, being a good preacher, a good teacher, even some kind of prophet. But when that person starts claiming to be God, we go, the red flags go up, right? It's like, well, <laughs> you know, he, maybe he needs to see a counselor or something. Uh, there's something off here when somebody starts claiming to be God. And so, as a good teacher, as Jesus is claiming to be God, as Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, we really have Three options. And being simply a good teacher is not one of them. Good teachers don't claim to be God. I mean, people like that get locked up. So he could be a liar. He could just be saying something that's not true. But that, we have a hard time rationalizing with all the good things he said. He could be a lunatic. He could be crazy. But man, he's... The rest of his character and the rest of his conduct do not fit with that either. Or he is what he said he was. The Lord. The Son of God. And that is the truth. That is the truth that the evidence clearly points to. And so this morning, we want to ask ourselves the same question. uh, Who is Jesus to us? The evidence points to that he is Lord, the Son of God. And if he is the Lord, then the only reasonable response that we should have is to believe in him, to accept his gift of living water, his gift of eternal life, and begin to worship him in spirit and truth. And so this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm going to give you an opportunity in a minute. Uh, But For those of us who are believers, God wants us to follow Jesus' example in being witnesses for him. He took time to engage with someone else, 
towards the end of the story in John chapter 4, his disciples were questioning him, why did you talk to this woman? Didn't you know you're not supposed to talk to women? And she you know what woman she was? And he talked to people that other people ignored. And God calls us to talk to those that he gives us opportunities to talk to, even those who it might may have pass and have a lot of problems. They might have problems in their life now, but Jesus wants to save them. She was ready to believe. And she became a powerful witness. Who would have thought it? Went back to her town, told everybody about Jesus. Many people believed. Jesus concludes with his disciples in John 4, 35. He says, do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And I believe Jesus would say to the same to us right here in St. Louis. The harvest is not far off. Don't say, oh, you know, someday in the future, maybe people will be ready to hear the gospel. I mean, if one looked at this woman, you thought, there's no way. Why should I waste my time on a Samaritan woman who's on her sixth husband? Or sixth man. So this is a hopeless situation. But it wasn't hopeless. God moved in her life. The harvest is not far off. We should lift up our eyes. There's people all around us in St. Louis. And that's the easy answer. We look at this person and go, they would never believe. Why should I waste my time with them? They'll never come to church. Why should I invite them? And we go down the list. Or perhaps, what will people think of me if I talk to this person? Or what will this person say to me if I start talking about spiritual things? We have all kinds of excuses. Lift up your eyes. The fields of people in St. Louis are ripe for harvest. And all God is looking for is laborers in the harvest. People who are ready to be a witness for Jesus, people who are looking for opportunities, people who are thirsty for more of God's power in their lives to touch people for the Lord. But this morning, if you are not sure that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not sure that you have that living water welling up within you to eternal life, and what that means is God wants to give you an assurance that you do have eternal life, that when you die, you're going to be with him forever. And if you don't have that assurance, I encourage you to pray with me so that you can have that living water flowing up within you that gives the Holy Spirit, that gives you the assurance of your salvation. To become a believer, you simply admit that you've done wrong things. And when Jesus told that woman the wrong things she'd done, I'm sure she said, he's right. And it's implied that she turned away from that lifestyle. She repented. She wanted what Jesus was offering. So you admit that you've sinned, and secondly, you believe Jesus. You believe the things he said. You believe he was and is who he said he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself. And then you commit yourself to following him as your Lord. If he is the Messiah, if he is the Christ, if he died on the cross and he rose from the dead again, as the Bible tells us he did, there's much evidence there by eyewitnesses, then our response should be to follow him. So let's bow our heads.
We're going to pray. And if you'd like to commit your life to Jesus Christ for the first time or recommit your life, I'd encourage you to pray along with me in your mind. Say something like this. Father, today I admit that I've sinned. I've done wrong things. I've lived life according to my plan, not yours. And I ask you today to forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that my sins might be forgiven. He rose from the dead three days later. And I put my faith, trust, and belief in him. That he is God and that he is my Savior. I commit my life to following him and doing everything that he tells me to do. Following his plan for my life rather than my own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.